Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Dave. So, Dave, uh, you're going to be gone for a little while coming up, huh? Yeah, I'm just going to, in a few weeks, I'm going to shut the door to my office and just fade into the sunset. <laughs> just go Never away. to be seen again. Yeah. And uh, it it's a weird thing, man. I just preparing to be gone for three months, like for the summer. I haven't had like a summer vacation where I haven't like that probably since uh, seventh grade. <laughs> it's been a long time. Right. So, you know, and it's not, it's, it's sabbatical. So I'm not taking what would be a traditional vacation, but it's a time of, of resting, of playing, reading, exploring, uh, discovering some uh, new ideas. I'm going to be studying Celtic Christian spirituality, going to go to Scotland and and tour around there. I'm going to hear some speakers here in this country for a while and just just a chance to open up my mind mm-hmm. to some new stuff. Yeah. And a lot of that a lot of that stuff that you're exploring is things that we've uh, maybe touched on a little bit here and there mm-hmm. or been introduced to through this podcast. So it'll be interesting to see what uh, what you come back with. Yeah, and I and I'm looking forward to meeting some people and and maybe some of those people end up on the show and yeah. uh may, but for sure a lot of those ideas will and and so I'm excited about that. Yeah. Speaking of people ending up on the show, it turns out when you're not in the country and you're not in the office for a little while, it's yeah. uh, challenging for you to be in the show. <laughs> I, I I would like to be in two places at once, but uh, that is not happening. And uh, but it's going to be great having Carrie on board. We yeah. talked about that last episode. Yeah, so we're going to be bringing a friend of ours, Carrie Smishek, on board. She's uh, working with us right now. We're kind of getting some stuff planned for the summer. Uh, you'll hear her voice uh, in a few weeks, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, she's going to be a great addition, another perspective, and just uh, another another person to connect with. And as we keep hearing from people and learning stories, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, but for now, we are in the middle of this series on immigration, and it's a and it's an expanding series. Mm-hmm. And it's just we've gotten some great feedback from from some of you, and and would like to hear from more of you, uh, but. Today, we're going to share our conversation that we had with Marion Bach. We had the opportunity to connect with Marion through David and Joe, who shared about their community at St. Michael's in our last episode. But Marion is a member of the Albuquerque Friends Meeting. It's a Quaker community in Albuquerque providing sanctuary for a woman named Emma. Yeah, we actually recorded this episode at St. Michael's. So a little ways into the episode, you'll hear Joe jump in to the conversation. Um, but yeah, we had a great conversation with, with Marion. We learned so much about our immigration yeah. system, uh, the joys and struggles of sanctuary and the place that each of us can have in alleviating the crisis that so many people face. Yeah. And as we said in the last few episodes, this can be an incredibly heated conversation in our culture. And and you already know that. But as you listen, especially if the idea of sanctuary is challenging one for you, be open to the conversation, to the life and stories of real people in crisis. We believe that if the conversation begins with the dignity and value of all people, our solutions can look much different than the conflict we see all too often. Absolutely. But for now, welcome to episode 82, Immigration and Sanctuary. Welcome to the Sandbox. So we are hanging out here with Marion Bach of the Friends Meeting House here in Albuquerque. I'd just like like to have you uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you're doing and, and what we can... Uh, learn from you today. Well, thank you. Uh, my name, as you said, is Marian Bach, and I am the co-clerk of the Sanctuary Task Force of the Albuquerque Monthly Meeting of the Religious Society of Friends. That's the best Quakers. title I've ever heard. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> uh, we have clerks instead of uh, chairs or moderators. Mm-hmm. We call we call the or the convening people clerks. Okay. 
a year ago last March, the Quaker meeting welcomed into sanctuary a woman named Emma, who is from Honduras. She's been in this country for over 20 years. She's married to an American citizen. Her daughter and her grandchildren are American citizens. And she was under threat of de deportation if we did not take her in. We did not know it would be a whole year. And when she hit the one-year anniversary recently, this past March, uh, emotionally it was a it was a hard time. It wasn't an anniversary that you throw a party for. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm happy to say that though I cannot discuss the details of her case, I can tell you that there is movement on her case, recent, and that her attorney says the case is moving forward and upward, and she's very relieved about that. Good. I think she can see the light at the end of the tunnel. What inspired? The, that community to get involved in this and how did those decisions come about and tell us a little bit about the need maybe even particularly here in Albuquerque. Well, the Quaker meeting in Albuquerque uh, has been a sanctuary since the 80s Okay. when uh, under very different circumstances, refugees coming from Central America took sanctuary, uh, I think, in the homes of members of the meeting. Uh, I was in Seattle at the time doing sanctuary with a Baptist church there. Okay. I'm Jewish, by the way, but <laughs> I'm, I'm very ecumenical. <laughs> um, and uh, there, too, the um, there were thousands of Central American refugees streaming mm -hmm. across the border with no place to go. And the church I was uh, attending in Seattle took in a total of 30. There were two babies born there wow. in the course of, the, of that time. 30. Uh, wow. Oh, uh, not all at once, right. but over the period, over a period of some years. Yeah. And meanwhile, here in Albuquerque, the Quakers were taking in uh, refugees. And there are people attending the meeting who remember that, who were very mm. active in that. And our minute, which in another denomination would be, would be called a resolution or a motion, mm -hmm. our minute was never rescinded. We were a sanctuary then. We never weren't. Uh, hmm. But in 2014, that original minute was affirmed and renewed. Okay. And then in 2017, I have to say that the reason that we really got in gear for sanctuary is that the executive director of the Faith Coalition for Immigrant Justice here in New Mexico convened a group of representatives of churches and said, there's someone, it was a Friday, he said, there's a woman named Emma who needs sanctuary Monday or she will be deported. Hmm. Uh, who's up for this? The rubber has hit the road. That's my expression, not his. And uh, as, we, as we chatted with representatives of uh, other congregations, small and large, it became obvious that it was the smallest congregations that were the readiest. Hmm. I remember thinking, good Lord, you such and such church, you have a huge building. It can't all be occupied. Just carve out a little for somebody. Mm -hmm. And the, But then I, I came to understand that the bigger the congregation is, the larger the political spread will be mm -hmm. among the members and the harder it will be to get unanimity. Yeah. or anything like it. And a divided congregation can't really offer sanctuary because it's an all-in experience. Yeah. Uh, Quakers operate on a unity model, sometimes mistakenly called a consensus model, but really it means that everyone has a veto. So we had a meeting. We were in, asked on Friday whether we would take in Emma. We had a business meeting already scheduled for Sunday, and we postponed the entire 
agenda and talked only about sanctuary for four and a half hours. Hmm. After two hours, we took a coffee break. Uh, we are coffee people. Quakers <laughs> are coffee people. And uh, I heard people saying, let's stop talking about whether to do this and talk about how. Hmm. So the whole second half of the meeting was about uh, forming a task force and uh, the Buildings and Grounds Committee had already been thinking about the best place for someone to actually reside, and we were there. That was on a Sunday. Emma moved in on Monday morning. Wow. And then we've been muddling through ever since. <laughs> Let me give you one of my punchlines. Because the meeting became a sanctuary in the 80s and reaffirmed that position in 2014 and then had this long meeting to... Uh, to formally invite mm -hmm. Emma, I like to say that the decision to become a sanctuary took uh, four and a half hours and 30 years. I think we had really seen it coming from a ways away, okay. but in the absence of a person who, who's saying, take me in or, or I will never see my husband again, um, you, you really get in gear. Hmm. In Albuquerque, it would take a great effort not to have your life entwined with the lives of immigrants. I'm not saying it can't be done. I think there are people who do it. But uh, we're, we're, our meeting house is downtown. We live all over all parts of the city. A lot of us speak Spanish and are in, involved in one or, one or more uh, kinds of activism for human dignity. So this, this didn't come out of mm -hmm. a clear blue sky. Yeah. So what are, what are some of the risks of a community of faith uh, becoming a sanctuary church? The risk to a sanctuary church is completely unknown because as of now, ICE uh, or immigration has never raided a sanctuary church. Mm -hmm. In the 80s, a few leaders of the sanctuary movement were tried and some convicted, but none ever did any time for sanctuary-related activities. So we are, I tell new volunteers, you're in a gray area within uncharted territory. There's a certain amount of risk in being very public about things that people don't like. Mm -hmm. But I have to say, we have, not, we have not had people coming to our door threateningly. We do have strangers coming to the door sometimes to offer support, and they have to understand why we don't let them in if we don't know them. Mm -hmm. uh, give us a call. Give us your number. We'll get in touch. The true answer is we don't know the risks. Mm -hmm. What are some of the kind of practicalities on the ground, and what, what, does, uh, what has the community had to find ways to, what kind of support are they offering? Um, what kinds of volunteers and people and stuff do you need to make something like that happen? When we took uh, Emma in, we undertook to have someone there with her doing what we call accompaniment 24-7. That, uh, that is not maybe the most important form of support we offer. I would have to say as a representative of the Quaker meeting that it is the spiritual and emotional support to live through that experience that is the most important. But there, there are two reasons to have accompaniment there full-time. And one is in case ICE decides to violate its own sensitive locations policy and raid the meeting house, mm -hmm. uh, the volunteers are trained in how to respond to that and, if necessary, how to record and witness whatever happens. 
Another reason is that we, we're a very small church. We don't have staff there. So if it wasn't for the volunteers, Emma would be alone a lot of the time. And we don't like the idea of having someone stuck in the building alone without right. recourse to someone who can help if there's any kind of emergency. As it happens, Emma, our guest, is delightful, and uh, David can confirm this, that the volunteers enjoy getting to know her. She practices her English. They practice their Spanish. She spends a lot of her social time with the volunteers. So, But it is... It is um, a, a job of work mm -hmm. to make sure that you fill uh, 28 shifts mm. a week. There are four-hour shifts during the day and 12 hours overnight. Overnight volunteers do sleep. And training them, coordinating them, and what I call the care and feeding of volunteers is, a bi is mm -hmm. almost a full-time job. Yeah. Every volunteer gets... Uh, two hours of training ahead of time, which focuses on the legalities. Then they get four hours of training by doing a shift with another volunteer, learning how to operate the, the phone to record things and, and where the bathroom is and all kinds of things <laughs> like that. And then um, they will get a reminder call the night before their shift and a thank you call during their shift. That involves a lot of people, but I'm convinced that that is why we have retained so many volunteers mm -hmm. and why we've never had a no-show. Wow. So uh, making sure there's 24-7 accompaniment is, is a job. But the main activities of the task force are to walk with Emma through this experience. We have to know what's going on in her case. We have to maintain a high level of confidentiality about, mm -hmm. about that. But we're also walking with her and her husband and occasionally her daughter and grandchild uh, through this experience emotionally. And sometimes mm -hmm. that means just sitting and crying together. And sometimes it means shopping for things that she might have a hankering for. And um, she has decided to take part in the faith life of the mm -hmm. meeting. She attends Quaker meeting. That was absolutely not required, but she chose to do it. So between the, the practical matters uh, of coordinating with the Faith Coalition for things that she needs, like groceries, mm -hmm. um, it's really a, a question of being a very close friend to someone in a very vulnerable and difficult situation. Who are these people who are so drawn? They, are, they tend to be people who are terrific with vulnerable people going through a crisis. Mm -hmm. And when they learn that we need people to be present with someone who's in sanctuary, they feel that that job has their name written all over it. So they're drawn to it because they want to give meaningful support to an individual. I would say they are also already activists. We're not seeing people say, well, I'm not an activist, but I guess I could spend four hours a week at the Quaker Meeting House. We're finding people who are very, very involved in immigrant justice, in environmental justice, in uh, Native American rights, and they find it kind of a tonic, restful and exciting at the same time mm -hmm. to be serving an individual rather than something as nebulous as legislation or... Right the environment. <laughs> and then they stay because they say it makes them feel good. Mm -hmm. They they tell me, and I, I do a newsletter for the uh, volunteers, so I save these quotations. They tell me that when they're feeling like their batteries have run down, four hours with Emma charges them up again. 
It sounds like your community is, is all in and, and this relationship with Emma has been just life giving in so many ways. Yes. I, do you uh, experience any resistance from the broader community of Albuquerque? We have been incredibly lucky in the amount of, of support, the outpouring of support. I think the broader community of Albuquerque has no idea that we're there or what we're doing. Sure. Uh, despite a press conference when Emma came to us, despite the front page story in the Albuquerque Journal, um, I was describing to my own doctor once my volunteer work was sanctuary, and I mentioned Emma, woman from, from Honduras living in sanctuary, and this doctor said, so I suppose when she finds work, she'll move out. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, th- I thought, wow, here's somebody educated and, in, and alert and aware who has no idea that this is going on. So I think one reason that we've been relatively unhassled uh, is that people are just oblivious. Uh, But when the journal covered our press conference online, the first rush of comments online were all nasty, Mm -hmm. were all hostile. But you expect that with pretty much any story about anything, that the first (laughs) wave of comments will be the haters. And then, because it takes a few minutes to come up with anything thoughtful. (laughs) (laughs) So... um, I'll tell you a story about uh, about Quakers, that this reflects on Quakers and our attitude toward the there being that of God in everyone. Um, mm-hmm. One of the comments on this uh, about this press conference simply said, Quakers are a made-up religion. And the Quakers <laughs> did not respond online, just waited until the public started responding. Mm-hmm. But nobody said, hey, this religion was founded in the 1600s. They didn't say that. They said, all religions are made up. <laughs> but since then, it's mostly been fan mail. Mm, that's good. I, I'm curious. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned that you were in Seattle, and and this was part of your life. Uh, the sanctuary was part of your life there. It's, it's part of your life now. What what about your story uh, has led you to this to this work in your life? Um, I was raised uh, Jewish, not terribly observant, but knowledgeable. I was raised to be aware mm-hmm. of the ethics of Judaism. I was uh, Judaism doesn't actually require belief of any specific kind, but it does require a kind of responsibility, which I took very much in the abstract until one day in the uh, mid eighties. I became, not one day, uh, in the mid-80s, I became fascinated by what was happening in South Africa by Nelson Mandela and a leader named Alan Bosak, who led something called the United Democratic Front. And I started to feel almost with a sense of panic that I had to be part of the struggle against apartheid. And I wasn't used to having those feelings. I think in in college for about 15 minutes, I dropped out and joined Cesar Chavez at that great point. <laughs> um, but then I just, you know, I just went back to my life and thought, oh yeah, I'll do something to help people eventually. But this was more than that. I had uh, a literally a sleepless night trying to figure out what I needed to do about ending apartheid. Hmm. And the next morning, mm-hmm. I uh, decided that I would stop doing theater, which was my outside of work was my great activity, and devote myself to that cause. 
And I didn't know how to begin. I had just accepted a new job in Seattle. I was in Albuquerque when this was happening. Okay. I had just accepted a new job in Seattle, and I didn't know where to begin. I was watching the news the next night, and there was a man named Randall Robinson with an organization called TransAfrica talking about South Africa. He knew what he was talking about, so I called him back. This, this was before internet. I just got the number and called, <laughs> and he answered his own phone. And I said, I'm moving to Seattle, and I want to help. He put me in touch with the American Friends Service Committee, which is the service arm of the Quakers. Okay. And as soon as I got to Seattle, I started uh, uh, shirking on my real job and working roughly half-time mm. on uh, anti-apartheid. I knew I needed a faith community. I didn't know the phrase faith community, but I knew that I needed one. Mm. So the day that I went to the, there was a weekly uh, protest event at the South African consulate. And the week that I went there to get to get my arrest, my proudest moment up till then, I met a minister who was part of the protest and I asked him where he went. He didn't have a pulpit at the time. He was working for the Church Council of Greater Seattle. Uh, but he said, go to, go to University Baptist. And I said, oh, I know about them. They're doing Central America. I'm doing South Africa. He said, trust me, just go. And uh, that was my spiritual and activist home for the next 11 mm -hmm. years. Uh, it just fit. I spoke Spanish. I met the refugees who were living there. I got involved in their lives. And then the refugees moved on, and we, we were working with hungry people, with homeless teens. Um, we got disfellowshipped at one point for hiring a gay minister. We offered uh, counseling to conscientious objectors during the first Gulf War, Desert Storm. But, when, but skipping way, way ahead, when I was here and Sanctuary came up, I said, okay, yeah, this has my name all over it. I thought, I know how to do this. I didn't, because this is, <laughs> this is, a, this is a whole different ballgame. So what kinds of things have you learned, or, uh, or what kinds of things did you realize you needed to learn more about through that? Well, I'm going to be a little bit mom about that because okay. uh, it, we learned about how, how to support someone in having a private life in a very public place. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is discretion. There has been, there was, I, I think at one point, a little bit of pushback from the, the meeting of the whole about the amount of confidentiality that was required, but only a little. Only a little. But the, the uh, example I like to toss out is, um, do you know how to find a dentist who makes house calls? Not a clue. Yeah. Even when you to need to, when you need to, you find out. Yeah. And uh, the, the simple answer is, it's who you know. So this is Joe speaking again. Um, when you were asking Marion about uh, where volunteers came from and what motivated them and, and the like, um, the thought went through my mind that I found that one of the most important motivators for people who have been involved in this was a series of uh, immigration immersion experiences that the Faith Coalition that we've talked about uh, put together. And they did uh, either a weekend immersion here in Albuquerque or down in El Paso. And the program is to go visit uh, various agencies that are advocating for immigrants providing social services like but also to visit the homes of immigrants and to sit down and have a meal with them and hear their stories 
And that experience of putting a human personal face onto the immigration experience, uh, I think, always results in people feeling at least sympathetic that it's an issue that has to be addressed fairly and justly or motivated to be actively involved in it. And it was, it was a bit of a turning point for me that I went on one of those uh, uh, experiences and certainly came away thinking this is something that the congregation just has to get involved in because hearing the stories of, of what immigrant families were facing was just so compelling. So I, I think that's been a, a kind of priming of the pump that's had a huge influence uh, in, in Albuquerque in response of the wider community and, and, and making people willing to support a faith community like the Quakers that they otherwise might have no contact with at all, but they feel this sense of, of commonality and allegiance around this particular issue. I think Joe is right. I hear that those immersion experiences are really transformative. I have not actually had one of those experiences. Uh, too busy. <laughs> <laughs> You've been living it. <laughs> but we, we are, uh, I think our sanctuary has been one of the stops on the local immersion. Well, isn't that the case, though? I mean, once you have a, once we build relationship, it changes everything. Once you have a relationship and, and you and you have the, a face and a name, otherwise, in our political discourse, it's a caricature. It's not even really based in reality, but once you know somebody, it changes changes things. It changes everything. Yeah. 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 A lot of our volunteers have come from, from this church, from St. Michael's. There's about 10 congregations that... Uh, that are represented on our volunteer base, but also people who are not faith-based. They may they may take an interest in the Faith Coalition uh, and have learned about this through the Faith Coalition, but they don't identify as having any religion or congregational affiliation. Um, they want to do what's right, and they see this as a very visceral way, uh, not only of helping somebody, but of standing up and saying, hey, to authorities saying, look, here's somebody who, who will have a right to stay if she gets due process, hands off. What struggles and challenges do you see uh, with this work, whether it's sanctuary specifically or the, the coalition on a larger scale? What things are, are, are you facing as, as leadership and people that are trying to, to do this work and, and help these people? One challenge we encounter is to strike a balance between respecting Emma's privacy and making the world aware that people with a right to be here and stay here are being deported and lives are being ruined. And uh, there's a part of us that just wants to shout from the rooftops and make and jolt people out of their complacency. I think it's all, all too easy to say, well, the president knows who has to be kicked out. And um, so as I said before, I think most of Albuquerque doesn't notice mm -hmm. what we're doing. Um, and our first loyalty is to one person. So sorting that out can be a little tricky. Mm -hmm. And then from the, from the critical to the political, uh, how we refer to people living in sanctuary is in play. When Emma first came to us, I started using the word guest. I didn't want anyone re referring to her as uh, our, oh, I can't even remember what any of the other options were, as our guest, as someone we were welcoming into mm -hmm. our meeting. 
the word guest is now back in play because a guest is someone who has to be on their good behavior. A guest is invited for a certain time and can be disinvited. And we don't want to refer to Emma as someone who is there on sufferance. Hmm. Uh, the meeting house is her home. She has the run of it. She's not locked up in a, in, in a dark room downstairs. And her needs are paramount, not our convenience. So I know that Tina Cashella started referring to uh, Emma and to Cottam, who's in sanctuary at another church in town, as people who have taken sanctuary. Hmm. It takes a few more syllables, but as, <laughs> as you know from covering all kinds of issues, uh, it takes a few more syllables to respect people's dignity and call them what they yeah. really want to be called. Yeah. And for me, that's, that's what's at the heart of, of a lot of this, and, and, I, um, and I wish we could get to that point of the conversation more often, uh, especially for people who don't um, understand why this is important work, um, is that it's really easy to, it's, we were talking about a little earlier, it's really easy to separate and look at the kind of the character of the political situation, but at the end of the day, we, we have real people who have real needs, um, and we want to be helpful, and we want to be respectful and, and care for them in this time of crisis. Yeah. I was going to add, too, that I think one of the things that has weighed on people I know who have been involved in the immigration issue here is to discover just how arbitrary the immigration system is and even the immigration courts. Um, I think people have been quite taken aback that any notion of, of due process is, is challenged and stretched by encountering the system. And I think that's attacked some some pretty fundamental um, concepts and um, allegiances that we have as American citizens is to realize that, that within our borders, there are people who are encountering something that does not look like what we understand to be a, a just, fair process of, of justice, that um, it's, it's much more arbitrary, much more unpredictable, much more at at the whim of passing policy and the like than anybody would imagine. Um, so I think that, that that is another weight on the spirit that infects people who are involved in it. Yes, when you discover it's not true that if you marry an American citizen, you're a citizen. If you marry an American citizen, you have the option of following a particular path, provided you came into the country legally. It's and so much of it, as Joe just said, is really whimsical. Uh, whimsical is a pleasant word for something very unpleasant. Immigration law is a stack of paper about a foot high. It gets overhauled uh, every four years. So it's a patchwork of sometimes contradictory laws and policies. And what gets lost is that if people come here with nothing, it's because they're leaving something worse than coming here with nothing. Daniel Vega, who is the organizer for the Faith Coalition, uh, says he hears people say often, our immigration system is broken. He says it's not broken. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to scare people away through the use of indiscriminate cruelty. What else should we know? Is there, I mean, we've covered so much territory. Is there any question that we're not asking? Any blind spots that uh, you're like, oh, you gotta, gotta address this? I would like to say to congregations that are 
that may have a small core of people who want to do sanctuary and a larger core who want to move carefully, that it's possible to debate sanctuary to the exclusion of all else and miss out on what your right role might be in immigrant justice. So um, the, the Unitarians here in town ran a 12-week immigration uh, series where they had panels and speakers and discussion groups, and they may or may not offer sanctuary. There may or may not be anyone to accept sanctuary. There are about a thousand sanctuary churches declared sanctuary churches in the United States right now, and only 30 people that we know of living in sanctuary. And they're not required to tell us if they have someone living in sanctuary. So. Um, I would urge congregations to get educated, uh, find the organizations wherever they are that are assisting immigrants, whether those are refugees or people who've been here like Emma and Cottom for decades, um, invite speakers and really explore what, what you as a congregation are called to do for immigrants rather than narrow your, the question to sanctuary or not sanctuary. I want to mention a seven-syllable word, word, intersectionality. You can't, I shouldn't really talk about Quaker activism at, in any arena without saying that one of the underpinnings of all Quaker activism is to take away the occasion of war. War displaces people. Climate change is causing war. So just because a congregation isn't welcoming immigrants in their particular vicinity doesn't mean that they can't help create a, a, a world where people won't have to flee in such huge numbers. Nobody, nobody thinks, oh, you know, life is pretty good here. Let's pull up stakes and become strangers, unwanted, penniless strangers somewhere else. They do that because they're desperate. And anything that addresses desperation is... Uh, is all for the good and is supportive of our effort. Man, I had never really thought about it like that before. As Marion said, just because you aren't welcoming immigrants immediately into your community, congregation, or home, doesn't mean that you can't help create a world where people won't have to flee in such huge numbers. Look, if your apartment building is on fire and you live on the top floor, you may have to jump. Chances are you'd rather not jump out the window of the top of a building, and I know that's true for me. But it may be better than the alternative. With regard to immigration and asylum, we need to ask ourselves, what are the systemic reasons why people leave the only life they've ever known? What is the reason they are risking everything and making the jump? Could it be that we can be a part of the solution in creative ways? As Marion said, providing sanctuary is one answer, but there are many other opportunities that work in concert with sanctuary, and it starts with exploring ways to care for and love our neighbors. It reminds me of a quote I saw from Barbara Brown Taylor. She said, The only clear line I draw these days is this. When my religion tries to come between me and my neighbor, I will choose my neighbor. Jesus never commanded me to love my religion. As you consider the crisis of immigration such as it is today, what are ways that you could love your neighbor and care for the people who are making this extraordinary leap? 
What are ways that you could help put out that fire or break their fall or create a world where safety and dignity and respect are not just an exception, but the rule? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. And special thanks to Marion and the community at the Albuquerque Friends Meeting House for their work. And if you want to stay up to date with all of the things happening in the Sandbox, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or sign up for our mailing list at sandboxcooperative.com. You can also rate and review us on iTunes and join us in the conversation. And as always, be sure to share this podcast with someone who might like it, because there is always more room in the Sandbox. Until next time, we'll see ya. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox. 